I'm Scott Farber, joined today by Professor Niles Romer of the Ackerman Center of Holocaust Studies on the University of Texas at Dallas campus. Professor and author, raised in the 1960s in Hamburg, Germany. And you're not Jewish. And I'm not Jewish. So, you know, that has an interesting twist to it. But tell me, when you were a young kid growing up in Germany, what was it like for the Jewish community there? Well, the Jewish community in, in the city of Hamburg was a smaller one and existed fairly isolated on its own. So you, as a, you know average little child in Hamburg, your exposure to or the, you know, relationships would have not you know, made you fully aware of, of the existence of the Jewish community. You would have been more aware of the fact that there once was a significant community, which, however, was destroyed. But personally, you would have very little, if any, personal knowledge of you know friends that are Jewish so in lots of ways would have been something that was quite foreign from from your day-to-day experiences as far as your life in Germany was concerned. When you were growing up how was the war taught in schools? Uh, You know that's an interesting one and it stretches my own memory a little bit Um, so how do I remember exactly how it was taught? It was immensely important Um, you know you said I was born in in the 60s so Put another 20 years on, you have me in high school. Right. Um, the 1980s is a really loaded period, um, in particular for Europeans. It's still um, the Cold War. We're, you know, we right. kind of think about 1989 when everything comes to an end, but nobody knew this. So this is still a period where Europeans are very worried about um, Germans, in particular, as a kind of front line of the Cold War being right. dragged into yet another conflict. At the same time, the 80s is a period where Hitler's coming to power. 33 has its 50th anniversary. The Nuremberg Laws, 35, has a 50th anniversary. So it's very visible. At the same time, if you went to a high school, more likely, which was the case with me, your teachers would have been the ones who were part of the rebellious generation of the 1960s. Right, right. Who were just like the American counterparts, but one of the other lines of conflict between them and the society was that they respectively asked their parents, what did you do? Right, right. And so therefore, because it was very personal to that generation of teachers, the history of the war and of the Holocaust was tremendously important, and we learned about it in literature and history and philosophy through our various fields. But it also, I mean, for me, quite honestly, the biggest breakthrough in terms of learning something about it was rather through one of the many exchange programs. At the age of 16, I went um, to Israel. I visited um, our counterpart in a town up north, and then subsequently they came to visit us. We toured their country, Israel. They toured, you know, Germany. But we also hung out with them. They were, right. you know, Germans, Israelis, but we were also all kids. We were all 16-year-old. Right. Right. And so that in lots of ways opened it up far more to me what um, the Holocaust actually was and, and how it also subsequently still impacted the lives of many. You know, I noticed my kids' generation, they do a lot of uh, complaining to me how my generation ruined everything, you know, in the world. So I'm wondering, when you were a kid, how, how did this affect you at all? Like when you would meet Jewish kids your age that had stories that weren't good for their you know, grandparents, maybe. How, how did that interaction go? 
You know, with me, the, the first, you know, if you grow up in, in Europe, um, then one of the, your more common experience early on is that you travel. You travel to France, you travel to England. And one of the, you know, experiences that I can recall very early on when I was visiting with my high school, London, and I was like, London, you know, record stores, and it was exciting, right? Right. Um, and we were like excited and we talked and, and it was very apparent that people turned their heads on and off when they heard us, you know, shouting loud and in excitement in German. And so it made me like very quickly realize that what was normal to me was not just not normal to others, but worrisome of sorts. Right. And so that made you a little bit uneasy about who you are, in particular if, and I traveled quite a bit. My parents were strong advocates of education, and they sent me to these language courses. So we stayed with an English family for three weeks, and then you know they sent me to France, and I did the same. So I traveled quite a bit early on, um, but I, I never lost that feeling that you know that there was something different about being German than let's say being France or being uh, French or being Dutch or whatever. And so I think. Uh, that came, you know, right around that time, 1617, when you think who you are, you try to understand something about your parents. My, my parents themselves were children in the war and in the Holocaust, so um, they respectively experienced the other side of, of, of this, meaning air raids, you know, bunkers, shelters, you know, simple story of survival. And it was later, really, that I was confronted more with stories of German Jews who had you know, escaped um, Nazi Germany. And that came more when I, at the age of 18, had to make my choice as to whether I wanted um, to enroll in the army. Germany at the time had compulsory army service or in what was called alternative services. And for various reasons, I was not particularly eager of joining the German army, which in lots of ways had everything to do with the memory of the war and the Holocaust and what German soldiers had stood for. And I enrolled with a small program called Action Reconciliation and Service for Peace. And uh, being adventurous as I was, you know, I had a choice where I would want to go. And I said, well, I've been in France, been in England, never been really in Israel for too long. Sounds like the most exciting place. So I li lived in Israel for two years. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I worked at the so-called Leo Beck Institute, which was founded by German Jewish survivors right. to kind of chronicle and document the history of, of German Jewish culture and history, but also of the Holocaust. And that's where, you know, I was taken in under, under the wings, really, of many of these survivors that actually, you know, you didn't quite know what to expect, but that immensely welcomed me and almost took it upon them to make sure that I would was properly educated. And so one of my first assignments in, in that job was that the director said at that time, so you work over like, what it was, 30 hours or 35 hours a week. He said, five hours every week, I want you to go into our library and I just want you on your own reading there. And that's going to be counted as a workout time. Right. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> perfect for me, you know, because right, right. I was already interested in history. So, right. but that's where I was confronted more with not with history, not with the Holocaust, but with individuals right. who would say, you know, my family's from Hamburg, and, you know, who would remember parts of Hamburg, you know, where they had grown up or where, you know, before Hitler came to power, they had gone shopping, and Hamburg has fairly 
good number of famous sites, um, a lake and a harbor, and so they would talk about it. And it was very apparent how even the good parts of it had become all painful memories. And uh, right. it, in many ways, they were tormented by these uh, kind of memories that had no continuation and never had any futures. How did your family uh, talk to you about the United States? I, I imagine that the relationship over the years changed, you know, uh, with Germany and the United States. So how did your family see it, you know, over the years? And then yourself now, too. Well, it's an interesting question. And, um, you know, so for starters, Hamburg itself is in the north, and so Hamburg was liberated by the British forces, mm -hmm. which meant a lot of these conversations initially when you grew up in Hamburg were more about England rather than about the U.S. Um, but, you know, again, going back to the 80s, I, I remember my little rebellious spirit that, you know, carried forward a little bit that I decisively remember that I think it was f for, at some point, a switch where it was very apparent, and at the latest it was for my generation of my parents and for the generation um, or my generation that in 45 we were liberated and not defeated right and so that's a big change if you think about it because the liberation of 45 did come along with vast destruction of, of German cities of Hamburg Berlin through air raids and, and so on and so forth but to recognize that date rather as something that w where Germany had not been defeated as much as that Germany that was mine was made possible through the defeat of Nazi right, Germany. Right. And so I think that was the big change just in terms of how one would, would have viewed that you know, quintessential turning point, 45. Um, you know, my father worked in a trade union and was responsible for international relationships. And so he was always a little less interested in the U.S. and always more interested in England and in and, and Israel. Right. And so that became early on conversations at home. What is Israel? What is England? How was England, England's experience during the war? What had Germans done to, to cities like London or Manchester or, or even Southampton? Right, where, right. you know, I actually lived for six years. Um, was my first job after I graduated was um, that I taught in, in Southampton, one of the cities that was also pretty much uh, erased by German um, air forces. The Jewish people that you knew that, you know, survived through the war and everything, um, did they stay in Germany? Very few did. Um, and it's, a, again, an interesting story after 45. Um, some, very few, actually stay. Many um, eventually will leave. Some of those who will leave, their respective children will return. So they... You know, when, when I studied in the Hamburg University, I, that's where I met more Jews who were also studying, but often they themselves had been the children of Jews who had survived the Holocaust or the grandchildren, respectively. Um, but the Jews that did live in, in the Hamburg or elsewhere, they were part of a very small community, and early on they... They didn't want to be seen really as, as Jews who live in Germany, and they so thought of themselves as really only temporary residing in Germany on, on the what they called the back, you know, packed back, you know, backs and suitcases ready to leave again. Because in many ways, the larger perception of, of the of the Jewish communities around the world was that after forty five, there was no reason for any Jew whatsoever to live in Germany right, again. Right. 
But out of a few survivors and some of Jews who had come from Eastern Europe as DPs, displaced persons, um, and ended up in, on German soil, emerged these new beginnings of Jewish communities actually really early on in 45, um, you know, you have Jewish communities reconstituted in Munich, Frankfurt, and Hamburg. But there were quiet communities on the fringes. They served a certain symbolic role for Germany to, to be able to point to the existence of Jewish communities, but they were small and fairly insignificant. Today it has changed. I mean, the communities are more visible, they're more engaged, they're also more uh, larger because of an influx of Russian Jewish immigrants who came in the late 80s, early 90s, and they're more noticeable and they're also participating far more in public debates about all kinds of issues. When the war first ended, was there like an effort that you could tell from the government to have a healing process? Very much. Um, you know, not, nothing was ever quite straightforward <laughs> because you have to remember that 45 did bring the end of the Third Reich, but it didn't bring the end of all of the people who, who made the Third Reich. Right. So various individuals stayed in office, doctors, uh, lawyers, politicians, and so on and so forth, and not everyone was always you know, eager to kind of you know, actually face the legacies of their personal responsibilities and also of the responsibilities of their country. But in many ways, I think there was early on a recognition that a new Germany was only going to be possible if it was to face its own responsibilities and would reach out to, to Jews who had once you know, been citizens, respectively, of, of Germany. And that took on various forms. Very famously in the 70s and 80s, various German cities invited what they called former citizens of Hamburg back uh, you know, to visit the city or to visit Berlin. And so they did quite a bit in terms of reaching out and trying to reconcile. But I think they did it also partly, you know, they fulfilled various roles. And I think um, for, for Germans it, it often vindicated the sense of themselves that they had really truly recognized their responsibility and had changed. Um, and it kind of allowed them to, to think more as this past as being something that they had already fully overcome. Whereas in other ways, it's still very much with us in different ways. And we see this even more so today that, you know, we started with the 80s and the Cold War. Well, the 80s end with 89, and famously the Berlin Wall comes down and it ushers in this, the 1990s that are loaded on both sides of the Atlantic with huge optimism and, and enthusiasm, the end of the Cold War, and a period where Germany reinvented itself with its new capital, Berlin, really thought of itself as a new society. And then you scroll forward another 20 years, and now we have again renewal of right-wing activism. We have right-wing violence, um, which is once again very troublesome, something which in the 90s, early on, you would never have expected to be, again, as much of a formidable force as it is today in Germany and elsewhere. You know, as a historian, we hear the term that's just thrown out loosely, history repeats itself. What, what are your thoughts on well, that? Well, the, the historian, historian in me, will quickly say, obviously not. 
history, you know, the very definition of thinking about something as historical means to understand it within its time and its geographical context. So to understand that whatever it was emerged out of, you know, very unique circumstances at that particular moment. Since those cannot be reproduced, the event itself can never, you know, repeat itself. Right. But in other ways, you, you do start to realize that uh, the past is also never quite gone and that we didn't just kind of simply come to this place and this moment in life without there being something that preceded us and without that which preceded us still having very much of you know, power and a force. And I think that's you know, what you have to recognize that if you don't want these forces to, to, um, to, to gain again support, that uh, they're not going to go away on their own. You have mm -hmm. to you know, understand that the, the, what you've been given is also something that warrants your attention and, and your, your engagement. It's not that it's simply going to be there just because it has been. All right, you're a young man. You're traveling through Europe. You're living in Israel. When does the United States come into your head? So the United States uh, came to, you know, again to, into my head twice early on. I mean, my, you know, initially my fascination was more, you know, for European countries and then Israel. But uh, when I started to study at the Hamburg University, I was looking for an opportunity to experience something else. And um, the university advertised all kinds of internships that you could do that, however, had one big problem. Most of them paid very poorly. And so that didn't leave me much choices, but there was one exception. Uh, you were able to sign up to work on a tobacco farm in Canada. <laughs> and so I went for that choice. <laughs> and uh, I stayed, you know, on a farm um, for like what uh, seven weeks, and picked tobacco. And I realized this was tough going. You know, this was not what I had been uh, prepared to do. But I tried to make the best out of it. And uh, the people that I stayed with, you know, those were all um, also workers. So that was also a different experience from the kind of you know friends that I had. But in any event, we made it through and. It did pay well, and it allowed then me and a friend of mine to travel, you know, first across um, Canada, and then from Canada we visited California, and then kind of through the United States until the money was out, and then. Right, right. Um, well, let me let me stop you right there. Why California? It just was, you know, if. if I mean, I, I'm just assuming in my head New York was your first stop. Well, New York was the one that I was going to have to eventually return to because from there I would, ben you know, Hall. my flight go back home. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, f for Germans, Germans have various, you know, dreams or fantasies about the United States. California is a big one, big attraction, and was the most alluring one. Um, we went to San Francisco, to L.A., and then wanted to see the Grand Canyon. And so, you know, that was my first real encounter. How old were you now? Uh, I was 19. My parents always put a lot of faith in me yeah, and, yeah. and into my you know, ability to deal with myself. And so yeah. nowadays, you know, when my kids say, well, but you did all this, I said, but you're not going to do any of this. <laughs> Those were different times, you know. Why is that true? Well, what did your parents think while you're, you know, going all over the world? You know, it's it's funny. You know, they they did raise me always. You know, with the with the sense that I could I that I would make good choices. Right. Uh, something that I keep reminding my kids that this is important, and that I was able to kind of look after myself early on. And I think it came simply from the fact that my 
principles had always worked. And so therefore I had always, you know, had to be a little bit more independent. And like I jokingly said earlier, they sent me onto these language tours to England and France. And therefore I was early on accustomed to being away from home for longer periods of time, having to kind of navigate things in foreign languages and right. foreign countries. And, the, you know, based on that, they, um, they were kind of okay with yeah. that. And, but I remember that there was always a debate between my father and my mother. Oh, yeah. not again. What yeah, is he yeah. up to now? Yeah. And, and then my father always, no, no, he knows what he's doing yeah. and he'll, yeah. he'll take care of himself. So do you really think, though, that it's not as safe in the world today for young people to travel alone? It's difficult, you know, and, and I, I look at it from two entirely different perspectives. You know, the one is when I was 18, I said, I want to do this. And the other one is now being a father and looking at my, my sons, you know. Right, right. Do I want you to do this? So, you know, the change of perspective um, means that I'm not entirely objective on, on this, I would say. Um, and then I think it's also, there are different cultures. I think um, if you grow up in, let's say, New York as a kid, where you're accustomed to going on the subway and going to Central Park or something like that, then you grow up slightly differently than, let's say, if you grow up in Frisco, where because of the layout of the land, so to speak, everything you do involves your parents driving you to and from. And so there's less opportunity for you to do many things on your own. But I do also think outside of it that um, these days, you know, part of the conflicts that our societies are experiencing are, for example, great social inequality. You know, you put a youngster in the middle of that with a nice backpack and his power book and his phone and all that, you know, he's an attractive target. And so that was not quite like that, you know, when I traveled, that, that the you know, social economic differences were as vast as they are nowadays often. So I think it has become a little bit more unsafe to travel that freely, which, however, you know, you want kids to have the chance to to do and to explore. And so uh, well, today, it's funny that, that you asked me that question. One of my sons is out on his first kind of field trip with friends with a car. It's about a two-hour drive. And I remember when he asked me, he said, oh, yes, okay. And so I needed to... He needed to ex explain exactly where he was going. And yeah, so yeah. it's like, you know, you l have to learn. You weren't right ways. behind him, though, were you, in the other car? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's learning and, you know, it's, uh, it's trying to trust then your kids that they, they know what they're doing. And, uh, it, you know, here everything comes a little later. Right. I respectively was at that position earlier. And right. so, therefore, it's now you have to, like, you know, okay. Yes, he can do it, yes, uh, it'll be fun, but call me in between, you know. Yeah, yeah. Professor, we thank you for your time today. We are going to continue our discussion. We're going to get more into your career and, of course, the Ackerman Center, what's going on here at UTD on campus, and uh, we'll do that next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.